Amen. Amen. I know for some of you, maybe a, a little radical. Praise God. We need to learn to get a little radical sometimes. Amen. Jesus was a radical God who wants to lead us in sometimes what looks like radical ways. And we have got to get out of our complacency and find the passion that God wants the church to have. You may not be called to stand up and to do spoken word, but God is calling you in passion to serve him as God has placed you in the places that he has put you, around the people that he has surrounded you with, that you may make a stand in some of those places to walk away and be willing to do that, but in others to stand and to stand firm and to be the light that would shine in darkness to people's lives that wouldn't see if it wasn't for you and God placing you in that position. He has put you there to be a light. Not to put that light under a bushel and to hide who we are. Will we take that challenge? That's something that we all have to look at. I am, uh, I'm, I'm gonna continue in Luke chapter four in going through verses 31 through 41. I wanna stay with my notes because I'm gonna talk to you a lot about today about some pastoral experiences and things that I've experienced in my life. I could go on and on and on and spend the whole day just talking about things that have happened and gone on, but I want you to have a basis of teaching so that we can have a, a, a response not based simply out of emotion, but out of what the Bible tells us. I believe that we do, like this, need to have passion, need to have an experience of emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. We are emotional people. God made us that way. But we can't just simply continue to move out of emotions. We have to have a balance of teaching in our lives so that we understand why our emotions are moving us into the things that our emotions are moving us into. Amen. So we have to find that balance, and I want to find that today, and as we complete this, I want to go through this in Luke chapter 4. We've been looking at verses 31 through 41, and we learned a lot about Jesus going through this. We learned, as, as Luke was describing in his investigation, we learned about Jesus as prophet in Nazareth. We learned about Jesus as teacher. We learned about Jesus as he preached and proclaimed the word of God. We learned about Jesus as the fulfillment of the word of God. We learned a lot. Last week we talked all about this. We learned a lot about demons. We learned, and in fact, even in Luke, he talks about demons or demonization or people fill, he talks about that 23 times just in the gospel of Luke. God wants us to understand that there is a demonic world that's out there that is just destroying the church because of ignorance. That is not what God longs for. We also, we learned about Satan and demons and then we also today are gonna talk about healing, about what Jesus has in this place of healing for us. You know, in Capernaum, this is where Jesus was. He went from Nazareth to Capernaum, and in Capernaum, he made that kind of the focal point or the hub of his ministry as he ministered in the region of Galilee. And Jesus, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's, he's in the synagogue, and, and Capernaum is the hometown of Simon Peter. Simon Peter has a house there, or at least close to the area of Capernaum. And Jesus is in the synagogue there, and he's preaching, and the anointing is upon him, and he's preaching, and a man rises up in the middle, a man that is demonized right in the middle of church. Come on, demonized people in church, imagine that. 
Come on, there's nothing. I, listen, praise God. You know what? If there wasn't an unclean demon inside the spirit of this man, there wouldn't have been a deliverance for him in that moment. Jesus desires to deliver those, and there are going to be those who are demonized in church. Amen. And so Jesus, his preaching, does something. It provokes the spirit that's within this unclean spirit in this demonized man. And the spirit stands up and says, you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. He casts the demon out, and he does it with great authority and power. The people had never seen anything like that before. Most of the time, when a holy man would stand up against the demonic, the demons would beat the tar out of them. Well, here, Jesus, he just simply says, get out, shut up and get out. And the demon does that. And the people are amazed. And, and the word starts to spread, as you can imagine, like wildfire. I mean, it's going all over the place. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And let me just kind of recap as we go into this next section. We talked last week about the analogy, the metaphor that Jesus gives us as he compares our life to a house. And again, I read the scriptures about that. We went through that. And he compares our, our, uh, our life to a house. And in our house, there are oftentimes, again, the owner of our house and when in this world is Satan. He owns our house. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we are, we, we are purchased with a price. Our house belongs to him. But there are still ways, when we talked about this, that we can open the doors and windows to our house. Doesn't mean that, we, and again, I don't believe, and, I, and Scripture bears out, that a believer can be demon-possessed, but certainly can be demon-oppressed. And there are times in our lives, even as believers, that we open doors and open windows to all sorts of things in our life that God died to set us free from. And so we talked about what those were. And I went through what I called the ordinary demonic. Those things that honestly, most of the ordinary, and again, I'm not going through the whole list again, but those are things that we choose. The, the unrepented sin in our life, the, the choices that we make to continue to do things that God said, don't do that. And, and to not do the things that God said to do. And we make these choices in unrepented sin, in walking in places of, of, of vague spirituality. And we make these choices, and it opens the doors to these ordinary demonic, which if we don't deal with those things in our life, then become the extraordinary demonic. Those things in our lives that we don't have choices over. Things that have just happened in us and, and we just are walking through this thing now. And so again, I talked about that. If you weren't here last week, just go back and listen to that. I believe it's important that we understand some of the spiritual realities that are there, the, the demonic and what God has done for us to, set, to, to give us a, a power and authority in those situations. But in this story that we're talking about that Luke is describing, now what happens is Jesus, he finishes his message at the, uh, at the synagogue and he leaves the synagogue and the whole thing shifts from the synagogue to Peter's house. And again, there's a huge shift that happens when things move from the synagogue, from that religious place to Peter's house. 
Peter's house is an important place, an important historical place. It becomes really, I mean, uh, Capernaum is kind of the center, the, the hub, and, and inside of that hub, there's the epicenter, and that really becomes Peter's house. Peter's house, it's a little house. It's hard to imagine this little tiny house. It's somewhere between 300 in the archaeological digs. They found the house to be somewhere between 300 and 500 square feet. I mean, that's not much bigger than a hotel room. And it's this little tiny house of the simple, ordinary, everyday fishermen. But Jesus lived there. Jesus stayed there. The disciples lived there. The disciples, many of them in different times, stayed there. And they were there. The early church was really started at a meeting there. They started to come together at Peter's place. Christianity started as a life group at Peter's house. It did. A 500, 300 to 500 square foot house. Don't tell me your house isn't big enough for a life group. And it kept growing, and the people started coming. We'll talk about this here. And it, and it was growing, and, and what, what they have found archaeologically in the digs is that what they did was they kept knocking down walls. As the church got bigger, they knocked down the walls, and they'd put up new walls and make it bigger and make it bigger until finally it became a large church. And still today, on top of the area where Peter's house was, there is today a large Catholic cathedral in that place. Peter's house became the center, the focus, the meeting place of the, of the first church. And so it's important. Let's look at what happened at Peter's house. In verse 38, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 38, he, talking about Jesus, it said, He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. That's Simon Peter. He entered Simon Peter's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Amen. Praise God. His word is so powerful and so mighty. And this is so packed full of so many things. But I, I want to, just because of my upbringing, as I said earlier, I, I, there's a lot of things that come up. Let me just ask in this place today, how many of you, like me, grew up Catholic? There's a few. I, probably in different regions and areas, there'd be more hands raised. I mean, if I, if I asked how many grew up in LDS faith, you know, it'd be a whole different story here. But in growing up as a Catholic, one of the things that we, you know, we we, they wanted us to do was to move into the ministry. And so you begin as a little boy or young boy, you begin as an altar boy. And I was an altar boy. And, and my mom's maiden name was McGonagall. So we were like Irish altar boys. We were this mix of Catholic, Irish, I don't know what. But if you were Catholic, then you probably were taught the same thing that I was taught in my catechism classes or CCD classes, as we, as we called them. We were taught that Peter was the first pope and that Peter didn't have a wife. And it was not good to have a wife because it would interfere with the ministry. And if you really wanted to serve God, if you were serious about serving God, then you would become a priest and not have a wife. My mom 
used to tell me that she, oh, I'm praying, Mark, that you're just going to be a priest. You're going to be our priest. You're going to be the priest of our family. You're, and it was like, until they do something about that whole wife thing, you ain't getting me there. Uh-uh, I had a lot of problems with that. The wife thing was the big problem in all of that. I said, Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Thought about becoming Episcopalian then. But God had other plans, amen? amen? But, church, just looking at this, you see, Peter had a wife. How do you know that Peter had a wife? Yeah, he had a mother-in-law. Come on, they come with the whole deal, right? Just so you know, a mother-in-law is always part of the deal. They come with it. If you have a wife, there's a mother-in-law somewhere involved, okay? And if you have a mother-in-law, it's pretty assured that you have a wife because every wife comes with a mother-in-law. And you know, the truth is, I've never, in all my conversations with single men and those who are looking for getting married, I've never had this conversation come up where a single guy said, yeah, you know what, I'm just looking for a mother-in-law. just doesn't happen. Now again, I love my mother-in-law, but she was not my priority. The priority was my wife, and the mother-in-law came along. It was part of the whole deal. And some of you got really lucky in that or blessed in that, and some of you are walking through the A mother-in-law is part of the deal. And so if Simon, listen, okay, this is one of those deep Markisms. If Simon had a mother-in-law, it would be really weird for the Bible to say that he didn't have a wife. Come on, stay, are you writing this down? But he did have a mother-in-law. And church, the scripture tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it tells us that Peter had a wife. In verse 5, it says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Simon Peter? Eusebius, a, a, one of the early church historians, uh, he, in his writings, he declared, he wrote, that Peter, he had a wife. And that Peter's wife loved the Lord. And that Peter's wife traveled extensively with him. And he also wrote that she was very involved in women's ministry. So, again, to all of you, we love, our, we love Catholics. And some of them are even brothers and sisters in Christ. But listen, Peter was married. All right? And his wife lived with him in his home. And so did his mother-in-law, who at least at this point was staying there with them. And now this mother-in-law is sick with what the word declares to be a high fever. She's got a high fever, a life-threatening kind of fever that, again, in that day, a high fever was life-threatening. It also was believed in that day that a high fever was a curse that was placed upon them because of disobedience. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 8, or chapter 28, verse 22 tells us. 
that these people that were here would have looked at this whole situation and they would have seen what sometimes we just don't want to see, but they would have seen this as a spiritual matter as well as a physical matter because of what God's word says. And so they come and they appeal to Jesus. Please, Jesus, please come heal her. And, and he comes to her, he stands over her, and the Bible says he rebukes the fever. He rebukes the fever. It's the same word rebuke that is used in the Greek. It's the same word that's translated in the English. It's the same word that's used when he rebuked the demon just a few verses earlier. It is the same authority. It is the same rebuke. It is exactly what Jesus did. And he rebukes the fever just like he did the demon or the unclean spirit. And do you know what the fever did? The fever left and when the fever left, she was able to get up and begin to fix food for Jesus. And church, what I want you to see here is that Jesus, he has full authority. Even on this, I'm going to read you some scriptures about this here in a moment. But Jesus has authority over the demons. We talked about that last week. But church, he also has authority over sickness. Full authority over sickness. Now church, as a church, do we believe in demons? Yes. Yeah, we do. The Bible tells us. Do we believe Jesus has authority over those demons? Yes. Come on, help me out. Do we help? Yes. Do we believe in sickness? Yes. Much as I hate it, we certainly have all experienced that. Do we believe that Jesus has authority over sickness? Yes. Do we believe that Jesus can and does heal people? Yes. Amen. Amen. Now, I've, always, I've known this, but I've, I've also, in doing my study through this past couple of weeks over this, you know, it is incredible the things that the church today choose to find as controversial. This is one of them. Healing has become a controversial, divided issue in the church. You got, you've got those on the one side in, in that place of the, like the word of faith kind of movement that says that it is always Jesus' desire to heal now. Okay? And a lot of people will, will stand and say, Jesus, Jesus healed all manner of disease and sickness, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are also those that are in that side of believing that it's not always God's greatest will to heal in the here and the right now. That there's a greater plan that God has, like in what he did in Paul or, or Saul or Paul. And church, you can find plenty of scriptures. I mean, this the issue has become kind of like the you know, pre-trib, post-trib argument. Where, where, again, the truth is, is that people are just trying to do the very best they can to discern what the Word of God has to say about these different issues and to say that, well, because one people believe in pre-tribulation, they're demonic and unsaved. Or because people believe in post-trib that they're morbid and wrong. And people in this whole place, some of you, got irritated when I started to talk about the faith movement that says that it's always God's will to heal and right now. Some of you got irritated with that. 
And some of you got irritated when I started to say that, you know what, there's places where we can see in Scripture that it's not always God's will, to his greatest will, to heal in the here and the right now. It's become this divisive thing. And listen, church, I, I will, we'll just deal, uh, this is what I know. Jesus is healer, yes, he is. period. Yeah. He is healer, and we need to do what he has called us to do because in reality, reality in this life, and again, you can take this wherever you want, but in, this, in the reality of this life, there are some of you that will experience the divine touch of God in your life and his healing virtue that will flow into your life to heal you from the affliction that comes against you. You will experience that. Amen. Praise God for that. But church, let's face it, there are none of us that are getting out of this life alive. I mean, except for the life of Christ into the next. We will all die, every one of us. And the reality is this, and this is not a cop-out. I know some of you will think, well, that's just a cop-out statement. No, it's not. This is just a reality. One day, all of God's children will experience eternal divine health. As followers of Jesus Christ, he tells us that we will, each and every one of us, experience a time where there will be no more sickness and no more death, no more sin, no more destruction, no more tears. Why? Because our God is healer. And again, the truth is, church, we don't heal. I can't heal you. I'm not a healer. I am not the healer. The, the best that could happen is the anointing of God, the gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of healing would come upon me and I could lay hands on you and to see you recover. But I am not healer. I cannot heal. God does. Amen. He heals. I pray for people. We pray for people. But God is healer. And, and, and in this time here, we see God, Jesus, the Christ, stand over this mother-in-law and curse the fever, and she is healed. Come on, amen? amen. Now, I was reading through this, and I thought, you know, by the end of Sunday, by, you know, in the afternoon, I'm usually exhausted. I mean, after, you know, it doesn't seem like much, and I don't know why, but after two sermons, I am just exhausted. And so um, I can't imagine what Jesus is experiencing here. Think about the day he's had. He, he, I, he's had a Jack Bauer kind of day from 24. It's like, this guy is just absolutely amazing. He gets up early. He goes into the mountains. He spends time in prayer. He comes down from his time of prayer. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to read the scriptures. He begins to preach. He begins to teach. Oh, by the way, a demon stood up and confronted him in church, and he just took care of it. He cast the demon out, finished his message, finished praying for people. And I mean, again, he heals this woman who's now in the place of healing, gets up, begins to take care of him, begins to make something to eat for him. I love this. You know what she did? I mean, Jesus healed her, and she came back and did everything she could to make Jesus feel welcome. When God moves in our life, do we do everything we can to come back and make Jesus feel welcome? Or do we, or do we just like, you know, take the money and run? 
So Jesus, I mean, this is the inauguration of his kingdom. He's, he, I mean, it's being spread around and people are coming and all these things are being unveiled and Jesus isn't even done with his day yet. He's, I mean, to me, it seems like Jesus deserves some time off. <laughs> when we finish Luke, you'll find that he does finally get a day, but it sure does seem like he deserves more than that. Because here in verse 40, look at, I mean, the sun is setting. So it's, the sun is starting, you know, going down. The Sabbath is over. At the sun, at, as it grows dark, the Sabbath is over. And when the sun is setting, it's still, I mean, this is still a place. He's still at work. He's still going on. He says, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Praise God. But listen to this. And... Demons also came out of many as he was healing them. There are many crying, you are the son of God. The demons are coming out and the demons are manifesting. You're the son of God. But he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Again, man, there's so much in this scripture. I'm not going to do it justice going through it. You need to go home and start studying through some of this stuff yourself because I I don't know where to begin when I start looking at all that's here. But I find this amazing, and probably some of you will as well. But here he is. He's casting out these demons, and he's, he's... Demons are coming out, and the demons are there in the middle of this gathering, in the middle of this meeting, going, He's God! He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, you shut up. You just be quiet. I don't want you to say that. Don't you say that. Why? Doesn't it seem like a free billboard? Why did Jesus tell them to be silent? Anybody else had those questions that... Or just me? Well, now you do. I, this is, I believe that he had them shut up for, for a number of reasons. One is because God had declared that John the Baptist would be the forerunner of Christ. He would be the one that would go before him. Two, as God, Jesus was going to speak for himself. And three, there was no way that Jesus was going to allow a demon to have any part in his ministry. What's sad is that sometimes today we don't have those same standards. It's problems in in the church and there's a lot of things that Joni and I were talking about this last night. How in the world can a pastor stand up and preach a message and then lay hands on people to pray over them while he's having an affair with his intern? It's just not, it's not the purity that needs to be. And again, Jesus wouldn't allow it. He wouldn't allow the demons, the demonic, he wouldn't allow no matter what it was they did to have a part of his ministry because it would be really confusing to people. And look at how many people today are terribly confused because of the things that have happened in pulpits and church leadership because there were not standards and standards that were kept. None of us are perfect, but there should be some standards, amen? Amen. 
And here's Jesus. He's at Peter's house. And just imagine the scene. The house, this little 400, 500 square foot house is filled with people. There's lines outside. Everybody's coming. It's dark. The Sabbath is over. And all these people want to come to Jesus. Well, why do they want to come to Jesus? They want to come to Jesus because they're desperate and they're in these desperate situations. They're in these desperate places and when they heard about Jesus, they, there was this hope that came forth in them, this spark of hope that said, maybe if we go, Jesus will heal me. Jesus will heal my wife. Jesus will heal my child. And because of that hope, the people start flocking to Jesus, and he prays for them. He spends the evening praying for every single one of them and healing them, commanding the demons to come out of them. And do you know how he's doing that? It tells us in the scripture, he tells us that he was doing that by the laying on of hands. Well, why did God have to lay hands on people? I mean, Jesus was God. Why did God have to lay hands on people for them to get better? The truth is, God didn't need to. He's God. God didn't need to lay hands on people. People needed to have hands laid on them. People needed a touch. People needed that. Look, I don't, I believe there's certainly spiritual things in the laying on of hands. Don't take me wrong. But I also believe that there's a lot of things that God calls us to that sometimes we over-spiritualize. And when we over-spiritualize things, sometimes we tend to step back from actually applying them because we don't see ourselves as spiritual enough to do that. It's a ploy of the enemy. And if we over-spiritualize this, we won't do it. So with that said, I don't believe that in the laying on of hands that it's something magical that happens. I don't even believe it's something spirit, super spiritual, super spiritual that happens in the laying on of hands. I, I, do, I believe in the laying on of hands, but this is, I, I believe this, that yes, there's impartations and all of those things that go on. But, but even in a greater sense, in just the application, I believe that in the laying on of hands, it is a sign of love, it is a sign of blessing, it is a sign of affection, it is a sign of encouragement, it is a sign of help, it is literally a point of contact for people. God didn't need it. God knew that people needed it. I'll never forget when... We had we were having services in Stansbury at the high school, and I would preach the morning service, and then I'd drive over there and, and do the service there, and then come back. and And when I had finished over there preaching, the worship team was up, and they were in worship, and I was getting ready to leave, and I was walking in the back across the back of the church, and and again, it wasn't a voice, but I knew that I knew that I knew that God had spoken to my heart, and and there was this lady, this elderly lady, who was sitting in the back of the church in the back row, and she kind of had her head down and. Looked like she was just praying. Spiritual thing to do, right? She's praying at the end of service. And, and I walked by, I noticed her, and I felt the Lord just really say, go over to her. And I, I didn't know what for. It was like, that wasn't a voice. It was, it was just, go to her. 
And so I stopped and, and I went back and I was behind the back row. She was sitting in the back row and I kind of leaned over the chair next to her and put my hand on her shoulder. And, and, I, and I basically, all I said was, you know what, I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you're here today. Just pulled her, gave her a little hug and left. She really didn't even say anything. Well, later that week, I got a card and uh, it was a card from her. And it was a thank you card. And she said, you'll never know what that meant to me when you walked up and put your hand on my shoulder. I was just sitting there praying and asking God, does anybody see me? Does anybody notice? Does anybody even care if I'm here? And she said, right then you came up and put your hand on my shoulder. And it was God saying, I care. I know that you're here and I see you. There's a power in the laying on of hands. But sometimes if we over-spiritualize it, we'll miss this natural touch that people need. Jesus' brother James, he, he writes this in James chapter five, verses 13 through 16. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing, praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We need to be doing this in the church. Amen. Come on, amen. amen. We need to be doing this in the church. We need to be doing this in life groups. But if we're going to be the church, then we need to be doing this as the church. Wherever and whenever God gives us the opportunity. We need to be doing this with our family, with our friends. We need to be doing this at the grocery store. We need to be doing this wherever and however God gives us the opportunity to pray for somebody. So as principle, stop telling people I'll pray for you and start praying for them. Start reaching out and praying for them and asking, boldly asking, God, will you please come heal her? Come heal him. Will you bring your touch of your comfort? Will you bring the peace of God that passes all understanding and minister to them in their time of need? God, come and bring comfort. You will let them know that God is loving them through you. And you may be, it may be a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder hug. It may be a place where you're laying hands on their shoulder and just praying blessing over them or putting your hand on their forehead and just saying, God, bless them today. Because church, a lot of people, a lot of people are just lonely. A lot of people are isolated. A lot of people in their life have been abandoned. Void of touch. Void of somebody in their life. And touch, God made us that way. It touch is very important. 
It's necessary. It's a demonstration of God's affection, a demonstration of God's love. We pray for people, and we pray for people with the laying on of hands. We love people, and we love the opportunity to pray for people. You need to love the opportunity to pray for people, looking for the opportunity to pray for people, looking for the opportunity to be the hand of God that would reach out and minister that loving touch in somebody's life. Come on, amen? Listen, have you ever had the experience of seeing somebody healed? I, I, again, in ministry, I have multiple times seen God bring healing, I mean, physical healing to people's lives. And oftentimes, it was the spiritual that brought the physical. But I've watched God do things and watched God specifically. Joni has been three different times absolutely healed. Not in our timing, but in God's timing of devastating, diagnosed types of diseases and problems. I've seen that. I've watched God. I believe in it. But church, I can't stand up here and guarantee you a healing. Hey, if you just put a little more money in the offering. I can't guarantee you that. But I can guarantee you that we'll pray for you. And I know that God always answers prayers. And, and again, we know that sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's later. I know we don't always like that. But those are answers that God gives. And so God will do what only God can do. And by faith, I need to do what God has called me to do. By faith, you need to do what God is asking you to do. And therefore, we should be praying for the sick, praying and believing that God can heal the sick, that God will raise them up, praying and believing that God, Jesus the Christ, is healer. Amen. Come on, amen? I am called to obey God. I am called to do what God has called me to do. To obey him means to lay hands, to pray for, to anoint the sick, and to pray that they will recover. Now, again, it becomes, even on all of that, I know that those words don't settle well with everybody. I'll tell you this. This almost goes down to the, you know, I've, I've said this before, that um, for those that are, you know, pre-trib, listen, I, I don't know, uh, you know, how we become pre-tribulation if we're not willing to become post-tribulation. Okay, I mean, the point being that uh, whatever your belief in that, or whatever my belief in that, whether it goes the way I think or not, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I have nowhere else to go. I will not stop. I will not alter. I will not. I am following Jesus. And so I am willing. Hey, listen, if I'm not pre-trip, I am, praise God, going to follow him through the post-trip. And I'm going to pray and believe for God's healing virtue. Listen, it is faith that moves the hand of God. We need to stand in faith, trusting and believing what God has said, what God's word declares. You can't, listen, we can't be, you can't be saved without faith. We accept that by faith. And, and, and church, it takes faith for you to be healed. You have to walk in faith to see healing in your life. But personally, I believe that you need, and it takes even greater faith to continue to follow God while we wait for the manifestation. Do we ever deal with people who are demonized? 
Yeah, I tell you what, in 22 years, and this month, it was 22 years ago this month that I went on staff in my first uh, ministry position, a uh, full-time ministry position, 22 years ago. And uh, man, I, I can't, I don't have the time right now to even go through all of it, but if I could just tell you the things that happened in my first week. Oh my gosh. I did not, I, I was like, I did not know if this was for me. Even, I mean, by lunchtime my first day, I was on a suicide call. It was like crazy. All of a sudden, there was like, like all hell was breaking loose against me. All these things started happening, and I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was going on. I had never had the privilege of being able to go to Bible college. I had never gone to seminary. I had never been a staff person at the church. I had never been a pastor before. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I thought about it. I mean, the greatest analogy that I could give you as to what I experienced was not knowing how to swim and getting pushed into the deep end of the pool and calling it a swim lesson. It was, it was that way. And I mean, people, all these people that I had known before were now, they were, there was people that were coming to me now and they were telling me these things that were happening in their lives and, and I had the hardest time not going, <gasps> or just slowly back away. <laughs> it was crazy stuff that people were describing that were happening, the voices they were hearing, the things that were going on in their life, the struggles that were happening, the attacks that were coming. There was one teenager that was a part of our church. He was a part of the church. The rest of his family weren't. They, his mom was a single mom. She didn't come to church. She, was, she, she, she cared about her son. But I, you know what the, this family had done was this family was trying to medicate a demon out of this kid. And he was just on, on, he was on so many things. I remember one time when he had gone to camp and as the, uh, the director of that camp, I had, he had to bring me his medications. It was like this gallon-sized baggie of medications. And again, I looked some of them up, and some of them were like, like, like medications that would stop a horse. It was, it was horrible. And this kid had all kinds of demonic problems and issues from his past, from his family, all these things that were going on. And we would pray for him. We would pray over him. And, and he would struggle. And this one night, he was having a particularly hard night. It was a time I could tell he was just really agitated. There was things that were going on in him. And he was a big kid. He's like six foot three. He was a big kid. And um, uh, he was just agitated and upset. And in worship that night, he took off running. We had the, our, our teen services were all downstairs and he took off running up the stairs and came up to the top of the stairs. Well, we were right by a highway and I didn't want him to run into the highway so I ran upstairs after him. A couple of the leaders came up with me and we had gotten a hold of him and kind of trying to settle him down and he's just all agitated and all upset and, and he, he's just... And so we start praying for him and all of a sudden he just like goes still. And... He is standing there, and I've got my arm around him, and we're praying for him, and, and he, he turns his head, and his eyes are just coal black. And he turns his head, and he says, they hate you. And he says, they hate you, P-Mark. And I mean, it was like this confrontation with this demonic thing that was going on. 
And all these things are just happening and going on and things are, uh, are just experiencing these demonic attacks, demonic things that were happening and you know, stuff that I couldn't explain. Still like, naturally, physically, spiritually, things just creeped me out. I didn't know what I was doing. There, there was one night when Joni and I were home. We, we couldn't even tell Lauren about it. Joni and I were home, and there was, we were in the living room, and there was this, like, weird, weird, like, it's hard to even describe. You know, we were trying to describe what it was. It wasn't like somebody was knocking on the door. It wasn't like somebody had thrown something against the door. It was this weirdest kind of thump on the front door that I'd ever, one thump. And it was, we both were like, this is strange. And went to the front door and opened the front door up to find two white bunny heads just on the welcome mat. And no cars, nobody around, nothing. It was like creepy. Well, I started... I mean, that creeped me out. I, and so I started looking for every verse I could find about Satan and demons and authority and all of these things. And you know what I found out? Satan is real. Yes, he is. Right? I mean, I have found out he is real and he is at work. And he really does hate Jesus. And he hates the followers of Jesus. And he has servants that are working with him and working for him that he has set against the followers of Jesus. And we believe that. And we have seen that. But church, we have also seen, as what Jesus saw here, people delivered from that kind of bondage. People that have been prayed for and delivered and set free from the kind of bondage and the kind of uh, place in the enemy is oppressing their lives to walk in new life, to walk in new places, to walk in the place that God had created for them to walk in. We have watched the redeeming power of God work to manifest in the opposite of what the demons were trying to bring against them. And church, sometimes, sometimes the healing in somebody's life is connected to the spiritual because the truth is we are one person. We are body, soul, and spirit. There is a spiritual aspect. There is a physical aspect. And oftentimes when somebody finds the spiritual part of their being set free, they find the physical part healed as well. Now, again, don't take that over the top. I'm not saying that if you're sick that you have a demon. But I'm also not saying that you don't. Okay, there are times when people are demonically oppressed and influenced. The open doors we talked about last week. As non-Christians, you, you can be possessed. And it will lead to sickness and a lot of physical issues and physical problems. And therefore, we need to be connected to Jesus. We need to be connected to the Holy Spirit. And that needs to be the loudest voice. That needs to be the most powerful influence in our life. We are going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, no matter what it is that's going on around us. We need to be connected to him. And some of you may find that in the spiritual healing that God brings, you'll find physical healing will flow as well. We see that happen in the scriptures. And I don't want you to be afraid of Satan or the demons, not to be scared of them, but also don't neglect them. When you see somebody that's spiritually oppressed, don't just, don't just automatically turn the other way. When you see somebody that's struggling, don't just walk away and judge them, become all self-righteous. So glad that's not me. Jesus never did that. Do you know what Jesus, for the people that were oppressed and even those who were demonically influenced, you know what? Jesus had compassion on them. 
Don't turn away. Pray for them. Pray with them. Speak the word of truth. Speak God's word into their lives. Because we're in a war. And in this war, church, there are people that are captives of war. People that are Satan's working on behalf of him against God. People who are captives in this war. And the enemy is devouring their lives. He is destroying them. He is taking people's lives and ripping it to shreds. And Jesus has come to set the captives free. That is what he declared in the inauguration of his ministry when in Nazareth he read uh, Isaiah chapter 61 and said that he had come to set the captives free and that is what Jesus is doing amen. come on amen now as I say all this I know that one of the natures that in the church we have is to well praise God for all that and we go to what we'll call guruism now I got to go to the holy man. I got to go find a holy man. I got to go find the anointed man. I mean, uh, this is why Benny Hinn crusades were just over the top. I got to find the Holy Spirit man to fix me. But church, the Bible says that every Christian has been delegated the authority of Jesus Christ equally. That we have all, as, as those who are born again, we have the delegated authority of Jesus Christ in our life. And this is not our authority. It is delegated authority. It is Jesus' authority that he has delegated to us. That's why it is so important for us to remain humble in this. Not to arrogantly begin to go out without the Holy Spirit, without prayer in our lives, without the Word of God, without the authority of God, and arrogantly think, I know I'm, I'm going out ghost button. I, I'm going to go out and find me some demons and crack some heads. You'll find your head cracked. That's what happened to the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They went, out, they went out against the demons. They didn't come in the authority of Jesus Christ and they got beaten, bloodied, stripped naked and running for their life. Okay, don't practice in the demonic. It's not a, it's not a good place to practice. But church, the truth is, is that you have the delegated authority of Jesus Christ, which means if you're being harassed, if you're being oppressed, if the enemy is coming against you, you have within you is Jesus Christ has purchased for you and given to you the authority to command those demons away from you in Jesus' name. You have been given the opportunity and the authority to do that. If you have opened up your life, you can today repent of your sin. Come under the blood of Jesus Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to lock down your windows and lock down those doors. That you can command Satan and his servants and the works of his servants to stop and to cease and to desist and to go away in the name of Jesus Christ because you have been given the authority that they must obey. But church, that is not because you're so powerful. It's because he is so victorious. It is what he has done for us. Because what ultimately is going to happen is Jesus is going to go to the cross and he will suffer and die in our place. In Colossians chapter 2, in verses 13 through 15, it says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses, all, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all, we were born dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God, everybody say God. God. God made alive together with him. 
Who? With Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Come on, amen. He died for our sins. He disarmed the powers, the principalities, and the spirits. He triumphed over them. He canceled any rights they have to us. See, church, through sin and rebellion and folly in our lives, we join in the war against God. But through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, our allegiance to Satan is canceled. Our freedom in Christ is granted. And therefore, God's enemies become our enemy, and Jesus' authority becomes our authority. And like Jesus, we can walk by faith, speaking the truth, speaking the word of God, walking in the delegated authority of God as children of God. And I taught this to my kids. You've all probably had that with your kids too, where your kids come running into the room, something, I mean, whether it's just been in imagination or or truly something that was going on, the demonic that they were afraid of, and they come running in, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. I've always taught my kids, I'm happy to pray for you, but you need to pray for yourself. You belong to Jesus just like I do. You're a Christian just like I am, and the Holy Spirit is in you just like he's in me, and you, therefore, have the same authority that I do. Church, that's spiritual warfare. That's what we're talking about, standing in authority, speaking God's word. Wednesday night, Jonathan's going to teach about this. But you know that speaking God's word, in the scripture, the word that's used to describe that is meditating. See, we think that the world has accommodated that, taken it away, and made it look like meditating is when I find it inside of myself. It's not. Meditating is when we begin to speak it out. We begin to speak the word of God. Meditating is when we begin to speak the word of God and begin to believe the word of God to be true. Come on, he'll break all that down Wednesday night and teach about that. So it's not like, you know, the movies that we see. It's not like Rosemary's Baby. It's not like The Exorcist. It's not, listen, it's not about, Jesus didn't let this happen. It's not letting the demons show off. It's not being totally terrified of them. It's knowing they're real, but knowing that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have been delegated the authority of God. He's given that to us as children of God. Worship team, come up. I want to close with this. Listen to the scripture in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, leading into the last scripture that I read. It says this. It says, for in him, that is in Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Come on, Jesus is God. In him dwells the fullness of God. In Jesus, in the flesh, is the fullness of God. And verse 10 says, And you, meaning us that have been born again, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Church, that is powers, principalities, and demons kind of language. And in that, Jesus is the highest authority of them all. And Jesus has come into this world, God in the flesh. He came into this world to save us, that he might then fill us with the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that he may give us the same authority, the resurrection authority over Satan and over the demonic realm. He has given us that authority. And church, here's the bottom line. 
See, some of you today are not Christians. The Bible very clearly tells us that in church, there will be those who are not born again. There are some of you today that you're here and you know you are not born again. That means, church, this. That means you belong to Satan. He's the prince of this world. And you're going to hell. I'm not trying to say that for shock value. I'm just trying to be truthful about this. Without Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. And the truth is this. You sense it. You know in your heart. You know because of the life of torment that you feel in your spirit. You sit through church and it just rips you apart. There's this torment that's going on. There's this confusion that happens. Our God is not a God of confusion. There's a a, a fear of death that we have. Church, you sense it, you know it. And therefore, you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to repent and turn away from those sinful things and say, God, come into my life. I receive you, Jesus Christ, as the Lord and the Savior of my life. I believe you and I trust you. Don't wait, church. This is the day. This is the hour. This is the moment of salvation for you. And we are not promised another one. And you know who you are. My question is, is that you? Some of you come today and Satan's tactic for you has been to make you satisfied and and happy. And therefore, you have no urgent need for Jesus in your life. Eh, Take it, take him or leave. I, you know, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. You need Jesus. Without him, we are undone. He is the hope of glory. He is the only one that can bring salvation into our life. And even when we don't know or understand, we have to got to believe and trust that we have got to accept Christ. Without him, we are undone. Is that you today? Some of you are Christians. You're not because of your, you're not possessed by Satan. But church, through unrepentant sin, habitual sin, stupidity, vague spirituality, you've opened doors and windows and you invited in people and things into your life that you need to repent of. You need to kick. Some of you need to do some house cleaning. Some of you need to evict some tenants in your house. Some of you need to get rid of some of the junk that has accumulated and you've become used to it. But God says, get it out. Get them out. You need to repent to turn from those things, to kick those things out with the authority of Jesus Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to come help you lock up those doors and shut all those windows and fill you with the Holy Spirit so that your house can be full, so that you can walk in that fullness each and every day. Man, is that you today? some of you are struggling with sickness and disease 
and infirmity. Some of you are being oppressed of the enemy. Some of you are really struggling in your flesh. And if that's you today, according to the word of God, we need to pray for you. We want to pray for you. We want to do what God has called us to do. But you need to ask for that prayer. And you'll ask for that prayer by responding to God. By responding in this time, right here and right now. That means getting up out of your seat and saying, I need to be healed. I need to come to Jesus. I need to, be, I need a touch from God. And we're just going to be obedient and anoint you with oil. Lay hands on you. That you can know the love of God through the laying on of hands, but anointing you with oil so that when you leave today, you'll smell that oil all day long. And it will be a sweet aroma, a sweet, wonderful anointing that will continue to remind you of the prayer of faith that was prayed over you today. So church, if you need healing today, physically, emotionally, spiritually, get up out of your seat and come to the altar as we sing. And some of the leaders, some of the men of the women of the church will, will, will pray with you, pray over you. But this is that time. If you need a touch, come to the altar as we sing.
Come on, our God is an awesome God, amen? We do what God has called us to do, and I believe that we'll see the turning point. I believe that we'll see breakthrough. I believe that we'll see God do what only God can do, amen? That God will show up, show up, and show himself merciful, show himself compassionate, and show himself and be the almighty God, amen? Come on, let's just as we believe, as we trust, as we pray, you've got, listen, the anointing, the, the smell, that, that beautiful aroma. Come on, some of you, you know what, while we're singing, some of you just need to come up and get a little oil and put it on your hands so that all day long you can remember what God has spoken to your heart, that you can be reminded by the sweet fragrance of the anointing oil what God has done in your church, in your body. Because church, what happens in you is happens in me because we are family. We are one body in Christ. And therefore, what you experience, we all experience together. So don't hesitate. Before you leave, come get some oil. Come put a little on your hands so that all day long you're reminded of what God has done for you. Amen? Come on, let's sing this as we go.
ocean's open wide, your fire falls down, heaven.